The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 13 today. Psalm 13. The title of the message is, From the Pit to the Pinnacle. From the Pit to the Pinnacle. This is a psalm of hope. For the heavy-hearted, or a, a, a psalm of hope for the hopeless. As I was looking at this psalm and, and studying, I started thinking about hopelessness and how in our culture right now, it's just a scourge, hopelessness is. As I was looking through some different statistics, I saw that approximately 50,000 people commit suicide in America every year. 50,000. It's the 10th leading cause of death in America. Why? Why is that? Why do so many people feel that taking their life is a better option than life? Well, there's, there's many varied reasons. There's different nuances to this. It's multifaceted. But the bottom line is they feel that they have no hope. They feel that it's hopeless. They're living their lives in the pit of despair. And it's not just a phase. Sometimes we we think of that and we say, oh, they just need to get over it. No, that's not the case. This is a real issue, and some of these people are debilitated by this. This is where David is at the beginning of the psalm. When we look at Psalm 13, we'll see David at that point, or he's at the point of, Seeing death is better than life. But the difference is, David knows where to go. And he doesn't only know where to go, he goes there. Some people know intellectually. They, they know where to go. They know, okay, God can help me here, but they don't, they don't go there. They stay in themselves. They allow the hopeless feelings to control their life, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. It only magnifies the despair. They begin to build these these false narratives in their mind about reality. But thinking this way only brings them deeper into despair. They have to get outside of themselves. They have to take the blinders off and begin to face reality from God's perspective. They need to see things from God's perspective. What is the truth of their situation? Yes, this is how I feel right now. I feel horrible. I feel like I'm at the point of I'd rather die. But what's the truth of my circumstances, of my situation? What does the scripture say about that? You've probably heard the old saying, you shouldn't, you need to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. I know that sounds cliche, but it's true. If we only listen to ourselves, we're going to have a skewed perspective. You see that in Scripture, where people begin only listening to themselves, talking to themselves. And it's all about me, 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 I, I, I. They need to get their eyes off of themselves and begin preaching the truth of God's Word to themselves. So that they can begin to think rightly. Because it's all about thinking The way we think, that's the way we're going to go. We need to begin to think rightly, according to God's word. 
Another good reminder is that we're not the first ones to deal with these issues of despair or depression. All throughout Scripture, we see individuals who at times fall into deep despair, even to the point of contemplating death. Yes, these godly people in Scripture got to the point where they were thinking about, Lord, I'd rather die than deal with this. Examples, we have Elijah, Job. You look through the Psalms, we see more of David where he's in that situation. Jeremiah, Jonah. Let's just take Elijah, for example. In 1 Kings 18, we have Elijah has this this great victory over the prophets of Baal. God is truly glorified. The prophets of Baal are shown to be false. God, Yahweh, is magnified and shown to be the true God. The prophets of Baal are executed. But then just one chapter later, in chapter 19, Elijah is in utter despair to the point of wanting to die. I want to read that. 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel. Well, let me just stop there a minute. Ahab, he goes and he cries to his wife. Elijah did this again. Ahab's a crybaby. You see that all the time. He's always going to Jezebel and, and tattling. And that's what he does here. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the life of one of them. And he was afraid and got up and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and asked for himself to die and said, Enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Why was he so afraid of Jezebel here after this great victory? It's because he wasn't thinking rightly. He forgot who God was. He was listening to himself rather than preaching to himself, preaching the truth of who God is. He forgot that God was stronger than Jezebel. Now, we need to be fair. Elijah, at this point, he was tired. He was exhausted. And not just from that account with the prophets on Mount Carmel, but this constant strife between Jezebel Ahab, the people of Israel, he was just, it was a constant strife. So he was exhausted. So we have to be fair. This constant, unrelenting strife. But we also need to beware, and we need to remember that. When you're exhausted, when you're tired, that's when you begin to let your guard down. That's when the world, the flesh, and the devil will will attack. When you're letting your guard down because you're exhausted. You need to be diligent at that time, especially at that time when you're tired. So that's Elijah. Then we have Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a man of sorrows. He's constantly weeping over Judah's idolatry. The people continually mocked him. They were always ridiculing him. Listen to this lament from Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18. It says, Cursed be the day... When I was born. Wow. 
May the day when my mother gave birth to me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. But may that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And may he hear an outcry in the morning and an alarm for war at noon, because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever pregnant. Why did I ever come out of the womb to look at trouble and sorrow, so that my days have been spent in shame? Jeremiah was in despair, even to the point of just death. But even so, Jeremiah and Elijah, they both knew God, they knew where to go, and they went there. They persevered. They knew that God was the only one who could help them in this situation. The only one. There's no other way. We need to remember that today as well. Think about the, the world's solutions. You know, psychology doesn't have the answer. They can identify the symptoms and they can label the symptoms. They can't provide real heart change, though. They can't provide heart change. They can help you feel better, perhaps. Put a band-aid on your the real heart issue. But only true hope only comes from God. And in our text, David points this out. He starts out in the pit of despair, as you'll see. But he moves to the pinnacle of joy and praising God in just this one psalm. Now, as we look at this psalm, Psalm 13, we don't know what David's going through specifically. It doesn't tell us which situation in his life he's dealing with. We know that David had many circumstances where he was in despair. When Saul was after him, Saul was wanting to kill him, he was in despair. When his own son Absalom betrayed him, he was in despair. So we know there's several times in Scripture where David was in despair. We don't know which one, but we know that he is in despair in in this text. And as we read the text, we're going to see three things. We're going to see David's despair expressed, first of all. Then we'll see what he does practically in his despair. What he does practically. And third, we'll see the result of his action. And as you look at this text, this is a blueprint for us as we encounter despair in our lives. This is a blueprint. This is how to deal with it. So let's read Psalm 13. And then come back and, and look at these areas. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the first thing we see in this psalm is this expression of a hopeless heart. David is expressing his hopelessness here. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David is full of despair and anxiety here. If you notice, the focus of these two verses, it is David's emotion. He's anxious. He's he's full of grief. And we need to understand in our circles that feelings aren't a bad thing. Feelings aren't a bad thing. God gave us our feelings. We're just not to be ruled or controlled by our feelings. Our feelings can't dictate our lives. They need to be tempered by the truth of God's word. Just because David is expressing his his feelings here, it doesn't mean his faith is weak. He knows who God is. He knows the greatness of God and that God will not forsake him. He knows this to be true. He's just being brutally honest. He's just telling God like it is. Don't be afraid to tell God your feelings. He already knows. Just tell him how you're feeling. Tell him you're anxious, you're you're despondent, whatever. Tell him. Now, from David's declaration of how long, he says that four times in these first two verses. How long, how long, how long, how long? From this, we can ascertain that this has been going on for a while. It wasn't like he woke up in the morning, something bad happened, then in the afternoon he said this. This is a long-term thing. It's been going on and on and on. He's finally just saying, Lord, how long am I going to have to deal with this? How long? Now we can break David's cry, his, his outcry, into four manifestations of his despair, actually. First, he just brings forth the main cry of these two verses. He says, how long, O Lord? That's the first thing he says. And then... He proceeds to ask some specific questions concerning this duration of waiting. And the first two things he says is, the first two things we see is that David feels forgotten and abandoned by God. The text says, when will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? When you've been in a trial for a long time, whatever it may be, you begin to ask these same questions. Have you abandoned me, God? Have you hidden your face from me? As we saw that, even in the strongest believers, this takes place. No one wants to be forgotten. No one wants to be abandoned. I remember when I was uh, probably eight years old. My family used to go camping to Maine every year. And we had one of those old campers. You, You put it on the top of the pickup truck and the, the front of it came out, went over the pickup truck, had a window. Well, we take that to Maine every year. I have an older brother and two older sisters. And one time, we were at this campground, and we were packing up and getting ready to leave. And I told my brother, I said, I wanted to go a couple campgrounds down, a couple spots down to say goodbye to my friend. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, then, as I'm down there, they're packing up, and my, we had one of these intercoms where you push the button in the truck, in the cab, and it goes to the camper. So my mom pushes the button and asks my brother, is everybody in? And he looks around, and he goes, yep. <laughs> so they start to take off, and I see him leaving, and I'm in, I, I, I come running, I'm like, ah, I'm running at this truck, and I see my brother's face in the back window going. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> it was horrible. 
thing. I thought they were going to forget me. It's no fun to be forgotten. In all seriousness, no, I think of, I think of Joseph also in Scripture. His encounter with the cupbearer and the chief baker in Genesis 40. If you look at that text, it says, this is after Joseph had interpreted their, their dreams. It says, thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Then listen to this. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Man, if if we were in that situation, we most likely would have been very discouraged. What happened? Why didn't this guy remember me? And Joseph was in jail for two more years after that, before He was remembered for two more years. You see, God wasn't done with Joseph yet in jail. He wasn't done with him. But we don't see any indication of Joseph grumbling or complaining. It's not in the text. You see, Joseph understood the complete sovereignty of God. Completely. In Genesis 45, later on, we see Joseph finally revealing himself to his brothers. These, These brothers that sold him into slavery... They threw him in the pit. They actually wanted to kill him at first. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. He was in prison and it's all they're doing. But then in Genesis 45, we see him revealing himself to his brothers. And look at the text. Look at how he interacts with these men who hated him. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, the brothers are probably Oh, no, chewing their nails. What's going to happen? Come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to save lives. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. He was completely confident in the sovereignty of God. He doesn't complain, nothing. He says two times, God sent me. And just to ensure that they understood, he told them, it was not you who sent me, but God sent me. Can you say that today? Do you trust in the sovereignty of God so much that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter where you are in life, no matter what's going on, you can say, God, put me here. If you've been relocated, For whatever reason, can you say, God has sent me here? Or do you say, man, I wish I never would have came here. I wish this wouldn't have happened, that wouldn't have happened. God put you where you're at. God sent you here. And if he decides to move you somewhere else, are you confident that God is sovereign in that? Or do you do everything you can to not do what God wants you to do? 
God has put you where he wants you to be. Or how about in your marriage? Do you say, I just married the wrong person? Or do you even think that? God has placed you in the marriage that you're in. That's the person God has for you. That's the person he wants you to be married to. God has given you the children that you have. He's allowed the trials of your life that you're facing for a reason. Trust in the sovereignty of God completely to the point where it sounds ridiculous to people. Trust in the sovereignty of God as Joseph did. You see, God did not forget Joseph. God did not forget David. And God has not forgotten you no matter what you're going through today. He hasn't forgotten you. He's working even when you don't think he is. You're not forgotten by God, beloved. He can't forget you. If we, we look at Isaiah 49, we see the nation of Israel, they thought that God had forgotten them. They thought that God had abandoned them, just as David. And it says this in Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has abandoned me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And then listen to God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God could not forget Israel, and he cannot forget us as his children. So it's not true what David felt. David felt that God had abandoned him, that God has turned his back on him. It's not true. But nonetheless, it's how David feels. He feels forgotten and abandoned. Now, the next two manifestations of his heart that come out here are his discouragement and his feelings of defeat. So he feels forgotten. He feels abandoned. He feels discouraged. He feels defeated. Verse 2 says, How long am I to feel anxious in my soul, with grief in my heart all day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, the phrase there where he says, in my soul, that indicates that David realizes his inability to do anything to alleviate the despair in his own strength. Let's bring the anxieties in his soul. He can't do anything about it. That's how we are, though. We try all manner of things to rescue us from our despair. We often try everything else before we go to God. We think various things will help, but they don't. If you've ever been waiting on perhaps a, a, a diagnosis, some major news like a cancer diagnosis or some similar situation, you, you know what it's like. You're stressed out. You can think of nothing else. You get a lump in your throat. Your stomach is in knots. You can't think of anything else but that. Your friends try to get you to do things, and it, it takes that away for a little while, but then soon enough, those thoughts, the anxiety, the stress, it comes back, and you're there again. Your mind goes there again. You're full of anxiety. This is where David is here in this psalm. He's grieved all day long, no matter what he does. He also says he feels, he, he feels defeated. How long will my enemies be exalted over me? We might say he, he felt like the world was just against him. He just couldn't catch a break. His enemies continue to triumph over him time and time and time again. And this is a bleak picture. I, I understand that. But that's what David's saying. If David stopped there, how horrible would that be? If he just stopped, that was it. He said all this and then it was like, that's it. 
There's no hope. That would be horrible. There would be no hope for the downtrodden. It'd be unbearable. But he doesn't stay there. Praise the Lord. He doesn't stay there. No, he's, he's lifted out of this pit of despair by how? By calling out to the Lord. He goes to him in prayer. So we started out with, in these first two verses, we saw these expressions of a hopeless heart in David. And now we begin to see the progression of despair to joy and delight. And it begins with prayer. We see the prayer of a hopeful heart in David. Verses three and four. So he, he's in this great depression. And he comes out and he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. The first thing we see in that portion of the text is that David, he has confidence that God can rescue him. He knows if God doesn't rescue him, there's no hope. And we see that right there. His feelings told him that God had forgotten him, but his reason, the facts of Scripture, tell him that God hears him. He goes from expressing his despair to coming to God in prayer. He cries out, consider, think about, mull over my situation. We might say, then, yeah, mull over. Then answer me in my despair, Lord. Consider and answer me. That's the key to coming out of despair. You have to go to the Lord. You have to cry out to him. It can't just be, I know this about God. You have to go to him. You have to cry out to him. Even when you don't want to, cry out to him. Pray often. Pour out your heart to him, even when you don't feel like it, even when you think he's not hearing you. Your prayers, beloved, he is. Pray to him. No, David states clearly what he knows to be true, even in the midst of his despair. He knows who the one that can answer him is. He calls out and he says, O Lord, my God. That's significant. In the Hebrew, it says this. It says, Yahweh Elohe. Both of these words are used to indicate God, but Yahweh is translated as Lord, and it means it's strictly used for the God of the Bible. Strictly used for the God of the Bible in, in Scripture. Elohim, it says Elohe, but when it says Elohe, it just means my God. When he's saying Elohe, he's saying Elohim is my God. So Elohe, my God. Oh Lord, my God. But Elohim is used for pagan gods sometimes. It just means God in general. So he's saying, Yahweh, O Lord, my God. He's acknowledging that there's a, a relationship here with Yahweh. It's a relational term. It, it, there's a, a sweet relationship. He's not just some power out there. He's a personal God. He's my God. And this helps David out of his despair. He's remembering, Yahweh is my God. He's saying, please think about me and answer me. Oh, Lord, my God, who I have a relationship with and who is my God, answer me, please. You're not just some statue. You're not like the, the prophets of Baal's, or, yeah, their God, Baal. You're not like him. We need to do the same thing. We need to remember this in our despair. We need to remember who God is. Remember who Jesus Christ is. Remember what Colossians 1 tells us 
about him. It tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Remember this in your despair. Remember who you're coming to. Remember who died on the cross for you. He's the one who did this for you. He can deliver you. He can rescue you from this despair. Go to him. And then I love what David says next in his prayer. He says, enlighten my eyes. He longs to see the situation through God's eyes, from God's perspective. He wants to have an eternal perspective on these issues. He wants to get outside of this bubble and see things the way God does. Remember also, just like Elijah, he's tired. David's tired. He's exhausted. He wants to be re-energized. This term that's used there, enlighten my eyes, it does mean give me an eternal perspective, but it also is used in the Jewish, um, it's used in Jewish culture as a term for re-energize me, reinvigorate me. And we see this in Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 14, there was an account where uh, King Saul, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but King Saul had said, nobody is to eat anything until we have victory over our enemy. Well, the guys were famished. They were so hungry. They're tired. And listen to what happens in 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 27. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth. The people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. It's the same thing. He was, his eyes were, he was energized. He was reinvigorated. That's the idea here for David. He's asking God for a new perspective, to be reinvigorated, for a new passion for the Lord. And then as I said, he acknowledges that God, that without God doing this, he will be overcome to the point of death. He knows that God's the only one that can do this. He says, or if you don't do this, I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Without God, that's a very realistic outcome for David and for us. Without God, we're at the mercy of our enemies. We have no hope of rescue. That's a horrible place to be. But with God, there is hope. We're told in James 4.4 that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Now, after this wonderful prayer of a hopeful heart, we see a complete transformation in David's expressions here. This prayer in verses three and four is actually answered as he continues to write the psalm. We see the results of this prayer in David's rejoicing. We see the rejoicing of a holy heart here at the end. Verse five and six says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
David knows here at this point now that God is, he's remembering God is full of loving kindness. He knows God is the author of salvation. He knows God has always dealt bountifully with him. Let's just look at each of those. Things that David knows and, and what he's doing based on this knowledge. Let's look at these things he knows and then what is he doing because of that? First of all, he knows God is full of loving kindness. And what is he doing? He's trusting in this. In other words, he finds comfort in God's grace. He's finding comfort in God's grace. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. Now, when we see that word, loving kindness, what does that mean? What's he talking about? Well, the Hebrew word, it's, it's, the word is chesed, and it's a, a covenant-keeping, tender love. It's almost exclusively used for God's covenant love and tender kindness towards his people. It indicates a relationship that was, that was genuine. It was sweet. We see the same word being used in Jeremiah when Jeremiah is told by God, I want you to go to Judah and I want you to say these things to them. This happens a lot. But in this one instance, in Jeremiah 2, he tells him, go preach to Judah. And it, it speaks of the sweet relationship that the Israelites once had for God when they first came out of Egypt. It says this, Jeremiah 2, 2. Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love, the chesed of your betrothals, that sweet, gentle relationship when you first get married. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. That's a strong picture. Think back when you first got married. To, to your wedding. Remember the anticipation, the joy, the excitement, that love. It's all new. Remember how, man, you would have done anything for your bride at that time. Hopefully you still will, still would. But you would have done anything. And she trusted in you completely. She would have followed you anywhere, knowing that you would take care of her. That's the idea, this, this sweet, intimate chesed. That's the kind of love and devotion that's being referred to with the term has said. David's remembering the Lord's love, this Lord's loving kindness, and that causes his heart to rejoice as he remembers that. He knows that God is full of this loving kindness and grace, and he trusts in this regardless of his feelings. Don't forget his loving kindness. Don't lose sight of his has said towards you. You may feel depressed, but the fact is, if you're a child of God, he has a tender, sweet love for you. Don't forget that. Take comfort in God's grace. And the second thing David knows is that God is the author of salvation. So he's confident in God's deliverance. He has confidence in God's deliverance. He takes comfort in his grace, but he's also confident that God will deliver him. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And we saw in the earlier verses that his enemies desired to rejoice at David's defeat, but David rejoices in the deliverance that rescues him from these same enemies. So is David feeling defeated and downtrodden? Is he feeling heavy-hearted? Well, he was, but now we see that he is no longer. The text says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So he's not anymore. The word that's used here for heart is the exact same word that's used in verse 2 when he's talking about grief and anxiety, but it's the same word. 
How long, it says in verse 2, how long am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart? It, it, but it's not just talking about the seat of emotions as we think of when we think of the heart. This is talking about the will, the mind, the inner man, his whole being. God has changed David's feelings, yes, but much more. David has been lifted from this pit of despair to the pinnacle of light by taking his eyes off of himself and putting them on God, the author of their salvation. His whole being has been changed. By going to God in prayer and remembering who God is, what he's done, and that he will deliver him from his enemies. That brings about a true heartfelt rejoicing, not just a superficial fix. It grounds him in reality, as it were. It reminds him, this is the truth, David. You're grounded in this reality. And it'll do the same for us. So let me ask you, if you're here today and you're downtrodden, you're weary, you're discouraged, maybe you're here and just like David, you're facing some pretty significant opposition either at work or maybe at home. You're just facing some, some deep opposition and you know, nobody else knows maybe. You don't tell anybody. But you're facing this anxiety, this stress, this despair. If it's at work, Maybe the prospect of another week at your respective job is just a nightmare. You love coming to church on Sundays, but unfortunately, near the end of the service, all you can think about is tomorrow I have to go back there. You can't sleep. Your stomach is always in knots, as we said. You often take your frustration out on your family. Coworkers are constantly riding you because you're a Christian. They flaunt their immorality in front of you with a smile, making sure that you hear what they said or see what they're doing just to get at you, just to hurt you, just to see what you're going to say, what you're going to do. Maybe it's not that, though. Maybe it's just the fact that the spirit of the age, the, the zeitgeist, as it were, has so infiltrated the culture that your workplace is requiring training now. Aimed at educating you not only educating you, making you sympathetic to ideologies like critical race theory, intersectionality, all manner of LGBTQ issues. They're making you do these things. You're getting to the point where you don't even know if you can continue to work there, but this is the field that you've been trained in for years. You love your job. You love what you do, but it's all, it seems like it's all turning against you. You need to find comfort in God's grace. Remember, no matter what you feel, God has a sweet love for you. His chesed is directed at you. Remember, these individuals, many of these individuals you're working with are not believers. They don't know the Lord. What do, you, what do we expect? They don't know the Lord. We know the Lord. Be confident in God's deliverance. Rejoice in his salvation. It's just a very temporary issue in the scheme of things. Remember, God is sovereign as well. He puts you in that job. He puts you in that job. When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody in your office? He's able to deliver you, though. He can deliver you. He delivered Joseph. 
eventually out of that situation. But while you're in that situation, know that God has placed you there. He hasn't forgotten you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He won't. Now, the final thing we see here in the text is that not only did David take comfort in God's grace and have confidence in God's deliverance, but he was also committed to God's glory. He was committed to God's glory, and we see this through his praise of God. Verse 6 says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Regardless of all the things that David put forth at the beginning of this psalm, all his feelings and circumstances aside, he will sing praises to the Lord because the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. He's completely changed now from the beginning of the psalm to the end. He's praising the Lord now. That's a wonderful, wonderful picture. God has never let David down. He has never forgotten David. He has never hidden his face from David. And David understands that, and he knows that. And after going to the Lord in prayer, David is reminded of these things, and he praises God through song. We now see David is at the pinnacle of delight and praise and joy. If you want an example of David's praises, I was just looking through some of the Psalms to find more of his praises, and I I came across Psalm 145. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read, listen to this. This is David praising the Lord. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will show joyfully and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. And it goes on for 21 verses David just praising the Lord. So let me just encourage you today, if, you're, if you have that hopeless heart that was exhibited by David at the beginning, begin praising the Lord. Go to him in prayer and then begin praising him. Remember who he is and who you are in relationship to him and begin praising him. God, cast all your anxieties on him. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in your soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your, in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we do praise you, Lord. We praise you for your goodness. We do know that there are times when we are, uh, we are downtrodden, Lord, when we are in despair. But help us not to forget the truth of who you are. Help us not to forget your loving kindness for us. Help us to remember that you are our God. And you sent your son to die on the cross for us. You will never turn your back on us. 
I just pray that if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you, Lord, anybody that hasn't come to know you, that you would cause them to turn to you in repentance. They would turn from their sins and place their trust fully in you and that you would save them, that they can draw close to you. We love you. We thank you for this psalm and for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.